0: Happy New Year, everyone, and welcome to today's Leader Professional Development Program webinar. I'm your moderator, Jim Heft, of Tradeox Communication Directorate. Our topic this session is a very timely one, ethical leadership, and we're pleased to be hearing from two outstanding leaders, retired General Carter Ham, President and CEO of the Association of the United States Army, and hosting today is the 17th Commanding General of U.S. Army Training and Doctrine Command, General Paul E. Funk II. Gentlemen, welcome.
1: Thanks, Jim. please.
0: So I know the generals do have a wealth of information on this particular topic, but we're also going to be checking throughout the live stream for your great questions on Facebook and the TRADOC watch page. If we happen to not get to those questions, we will share several supplemental short videos over social media, especially on our LinkedIn channel, which is at US Army TRADOC in the uh, coming weeks. Finally. Continue the conversation and build your cohesive teams in your squadron unit. Take what you learned here today and talk about how it applies to your team. With that, I'm pleased to introduce TRADOC's Commanding General, General Funk.
1: Thanks, Jim. And uh, let me just take a minute and introduce, uh, and, and actually, he needs no introduction, And uh, but let me just talk a little bit about the experience of uh, General Carter Ham. What a tremendous opportunity to hear one, from one of the most ethical leaders I've ever met in my career. He and I share a uh, common commonality of actually commanding the Big Red One. Uh, he has been a, a factor in my life since I was a very young uh, lieutenant colonel, and he is uh, one of the great leaders of our army. He has since then gone on to lead in civilian life and has led an incredibly um, uh, selfless service life. He's commanded at every level. He he took us through the the what was at that time a hot button issue and now is uh seems like it was in our rear view mirror, which was don't ask, don't tell. Uh and uh and and he was uh there when we uh, he was the overall commander when the Benghazi attack happened. So Carter Ham is not is not uh has has not been tested. He's a tested, true inspirational leader, and it's my opportunity to to say welcome to Tradoc, thanks for making the drive up the up the route, and thanks for being here with us, sir. Thanks very much for the, for coming today.
2: Well, thanks very much, General Funk. It's it's really good to to be here with you today, and, and I appreciate the opportunity to to talk about this. So just one, you know, impolite to to correct <laughs> the host, but I'm gonna correct the host. So a hundred years ago, when you were just a, a very very right. young uh, young person, I think not even in the army yet. Your dad was the commander of the National Training Center that's right. and Captain and Major Ham was serving at the National <laughs> Training Center in those days long before I think that's you joined right. the Army but uh, so my relationship with the Funk family is pretty long-standing. That's right absolutely and
1: he remembers those days very fondly as well.
2: Absolutely, it was, those were those were indeed good days, yep. different days than yes. we're encountering today.
1: Yep, that's exactly right.
2: Yep. So. Uh, Jim, back to you. Let's get
1: started.
0: Yeah, we, let's get started and let's let's talk with the issue that everybody's talking about. Um, we've got a memorandum from the joint for the joint force uh, from the combined sec- or yeah from the combined uh, generals. Um, And we also have a message to the Army community about the recent events at the Capitol. So I just want to read a couple quick excerpts that are directly applicable to what we're going to be talking about today. Uh, First, from the memo to the Joint Force, As service members, we must embody the values and ideals of the nation. We support and defend the Constitution. Any act to disrupt the constitutional process is not only against our traditions, values, and oath, it's against the law. And then from the Army memo, the nation expects all members of the United States Army to follow the law and do the right things the right way, whether we are in or out of uniform, to maintain the sacred trust of the American people. It is important that all those who represent the Army in any capacity remain models of professionalism, character, and integrity. I I know both of you have thoughts on... The stunning actions of January 6. So, so where do we go as an Army community and values and trust?
2: Well, I think trust is the is the operative word. That that's really what the 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 profession of arms is based upon. Is that foundation of trust between leader and led, uh, between leaders and uh, civilian authorities, and between the Army, the trust of the Army and the nation. And so, I think it's it's really. Uh, I, I think that, that focus on trust by the Joint Chiefs uh, and by the senior Army leaders is, is very, very appropriate. Um, these are unprecedented times, I, maybe not quite unprecedented in our history, but certainly in our lifetime, unprecedented uh, events. And the fact that I think that the, that the Joint Chiefs and the senior Army leaders, the secretary, the chief, the sergeant major of the Army, uh, felt it necessary to say, hey, remember who you are. Remember who you are as an individual professional. Remember who you are as an institution, and remember where we are, what we are grounded in. We are grounded in that oath to the to the Constitution. It's a it's an important reminder at a particularly sensitive and critical time for our nation. Uh, I
1: could not agree more. And uh, to tell you, uh, we hit on values. The, the Army's base is values, and it is on trust. And it is, in fact, uh, those things that make us the bedrock. We get the, uh, we get the privilege to wear the cloth of our nation. Every day, we have to, to lead. This is the jersey of the greatest team on earth. We have to lead that in a better place every day. And to do that, we have to do things based on our values and based on uh, our laws and regulations. So I think that uh, um, never forgetting that we represent our nation is important to remember.
0: I think in a situation like this, uh, couldn't be more apparent about that relationship between civilian authority and military personnel. And so I, I guess the question in terms of ethical leadership, where, where do you find those lines?
2: Yeah, so I think it's an interesting challenge. And it becomes you know this, this relationship between military and civilian. Um, well, the principle is never in question of civilian control of the military, civilian leadership of the military. That's, that's, that's established, well-established uh, in our nation as, as custom, as tradition, encapsulated in law, and so that's very fine. It, it gets a little bit more difficult in practice, all right? And, and I, I recall one instance, I was a, I was a, a, a one-star serving at the Pentagon. And was in a session with some uh, some folks from the National Security Council staff, and, and a particularly uh, fairly contentious matter, and we were kind of arguing back and forth on positions. And finally, one of the young uh, National Security Council staffers turns to me and just says, "Well, General, you just don't understand civilian control of the military." And I gave probably the most inappropriate answer <laughs> ever given, and I said, "I understand it perfectly, and it's not you." And I, um, so it is, it is understanding of, you know, what, what is civilian control and that the authority that rests, you know, with those who are elected, the commander in chief, uh, elected the members of Congress who establish the laws, practices and resources which are available to the military and those who are appointed and confirmed by the, the Congress. The Secretary of Defense uh, and the Secretary, the Service Secretaries. So it's understanding first of all formally, you know, what are those authorities and with whom does those do those authorities rest, and then it, it is I would describe civilian control of the military very much as a partnership, and I think we've seen some recent examples of where that's been quite good, and perhaps some where it's where perhaps uh, worth uh, worth further study, but when the the civilian leadership uh, certainly has the responsibility to establish the objectives, the broad uh, uh, goals uh, for the employment of the, of the military, how the military is going to be structured. In, uh, or structured. And then the military leaders uh, are the implementers of that. They have, the military leaders have an obligation to provide their best military advice consistent with, with law, policy and their own experience. Uh, This is why those who rise to to high rank are are ultimately have to be confirmed by the Senate. The Congress saying, we have trust and confidence uh, in Paul Funk to execute these these broad authorities. But even with that, General Funk operates within a framework that is established by civilian authority. Um, It doesn't mean there aren't tense conversations. There often (laughs) are, you know, but at the end of the day, it is the civilian authority, whether it's commander in chief, Secretary of Defense, service secretary that says, thank you for your contributions, this is what we're going to do. And then the military then says, you are the duly appointed, duly elected, in case of the commander in chief, and that's what we're going to do and we put all of our energy behind executing that lawful order.
0: And and both of you have been under intense pressure and scrutiny um, by the natures of your office. How How do you handle that in an ethical manner?
1: Well, I mean, you got to First of all, you, it goes back to trust, then it goes back to your values. It goes back to every, all your experience growing up in in the military, and then it goes to uh, as as uh, General Ham said, it actually goes to these are the the values, these are the rules, these are the laws and regulations that cause us. And I like to trust my gut. My gut tells me right and wrong, and 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 many in every case doing the, the hard right is the right way to go. And we see that all the time.
0: And over a 38-year career, uh, you've, you've seen the gamut. Um, what, what tools have you learned, or what have, techniques have you used uh, in your decision-making process?
2: So Jim, I think that the key thing that senior leaders can do, uh, particularly rising to the level where General Funk serves, and uh, you know, at the three and four star level, it's an understanding that many of the many, not all, but many of the civilians who come into those very senior positions, do not bring to those positions the same depth of experience as the military leader may be. It's not a question about who's in charge. We know the civilians are in charge. It's about it's about question. In, in, interesting, experience. it's it's a little bit like platoon leader platoon sergeant relationship, yeah, that's right? right? The platoon leader comes in fresh out of the officer basic, you know, out of out of Bolick, uh, and the platoon leader is in charge. There's no question about that, but the platoon sergeant has the background, has the experience, has the technical, tactical knowledge to help that lieutenant, that platoon leader be in charge. And I think so that communication between senior military uh, and senior civilian, particularly appointees, is absolutely vital uh, to this trust that General Funk talks about between uh, civil civilian and military leaders and the more we can do that the more we can have show respect for one another given different backgrounds without ever any question about who's really in charge and and the military officials do in fact give their very candid very ethical best military advice and ultimately the decision rests with civilian authorities absolutely
1: Uh, competence candor commitment and then uh, of course uh, our ability to have the courage to to advise to the strongest level but once the decisions made if it's legal moral and ethical you drive it and that's what we got that's what we get paid to do now
0: loyalty conflicts and principles, do they ever come in conflict and do they come in conflict main, mainly with like organizational practices um, or maybe things, personal agendas, things that uh, have maybe found themselves in the culture uh, for whatever reason? Um, what have you seen uh, throughout your both of your careers in that and and how have you managed or dealt with them?
2: Um, I, I think that there is a, I do share a bit of a concern in, in that regard. Uh, that that it's a, it's to remind ourselves that in service the loyalty is to the nation, the loyalty is to your oath, the loyalty is to the Constitution, uh, and we sometimes get swept up in a in a uh, in in a personal relationship with a you know with a particular sergeant major or a particular commander or a particular general, uh, and it's not that it's not that uh, you shouldn't be loyal to that. To that senior leader, but that loyalty must always be subordinated to the broader sense of loyalty. You know, loyalty is a is an army value for a reason, and it, it, you know and and we don't talk about loyalty you know to my battalion commander. I don't talk about loyalty to my first sergeant. You know, though though that those are those are okay, but but the real loyalty is to the nation. And if we if we get caught up sometimes in this. Uh, you, you know that, you know that uh, I'm going to do whatever I can to support General Funk. That's that's not quite the kind of loyalty that we're that we're that we're seeking. What what we're looking for is I want you to be loyal to your oath, loyal to the nation. Do everything you can to fulfill your mission. You know, certainly under General Funk's guidance and and direction. But it's 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 less about personal loyalty to a particular right. leader. Right. than it is to the set of ideals to which we have each sworn.
1: That, that's loyalty to the ideals that, that founded this great institution is the important piece of that. I, 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 I agree wholeheartedly.
0: So I'm very new to the Army. Uh, July was when I was hired here at, at TRADOC. My background is Navy and joint. Uh, and so we have the joint planning process. There is like the Navy planning process. How, how does Army training and doctrine and our planning processes fit um, tangibly into this ethics conversation. Well,
1: the, the Army's very doctrinally based, right? So we have FM uh, 6-22 which is our leadership uh, manual which gives us uh, a, a framework to exercise and even provides examples and ways to attack uh, uh, ethical behavior in your organizations. If we open our books and read the doctrine, we will see a, 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 I guess the the right word is a a footprint or or actually uh, some sort of a blueprint on how to proceed in an ethical fashion and how to train ethical decision making and ethical leadership in your organizations. We, getting back to the books and understanding our profession and diving on our, driving on our Army values, and then using our doctrine to back that up so everything has a common reference is the right way to go in this, in this regard. The Army is uh, big time into those kinds of things.
2: I, I, would, I would echo that. and I think um, so. I, in a previous life I was the, 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 the chief of uh, light infantry doctrine at the infantry school for a, for a period of time. And so the Army is, as General Funk said, very grounded in doctrine and it is important for Army professionals, uniformed and civilian, to understand that, that, uh, that doc, doctrinal underpinning uh, for what the Army does, why the Army is, uh, and for particular aspects of, of Army operations. But that's not enough. It, it, that's, the, that's the baseline yep. uh, understanding that, that each Army professional must possess and it is a matter of study and self-study i find myself you know even even you know as a as a soldier for life now you know occasionally going back to, to army doctrinal manuals to say you know what what does the army say about the army profession what is the you know what's the what is, current? That is important but again that's not enough when you combine that doctrinal knowledge and understanding which is which is facilitated by small group discussions frankly yep and then you combine it with the examples of a David Bellavia, yep. all right? And when you, that's when you start to get really a culture uh, of, of professionalism, of, of strong ethical underpinning to Army actions. When you combine that, that doctrinal understanding with the personal examples uh, of, of uh, the Army values, that's when we really start to get something.
1: It's, a, it's great. Self-study is a phenomenal piece of this thing. And then the operational experiences and, and actually taking the advantage of learning from other people's the, um, experiences is, is the real key to, to our army. The after action review, uh, speaking all the way back to our discussion on the National Training Center, for example, that was revolutionary in our army. And it changed the way we examine and operate and, and how, what it is we do. That's what has changed. It was while the CTCs were the big idea, the the combat training centers were the big idea, the after-action review was the the enduring process of learning from each other's experiences, well, good and bad, so that we don't make the same mistakes twice. And that has been underpinning my career for for years, now 34 and a half years. That was the key to this thing. And it it doesn't matter what level you're at, whether you're a private or a four-star general, you learn from those experiences. Our doctrine gives us a way to analyze the the procedures. Our experiences give us the the richness that, uh, that we need to actually explore where it is. And if you bring our Center for Military History and learning from historical examples of things that didn't go as well on the battlefield or losses that we've had and lessons that we've learned the hard way, so that we don't repeat those in, in training uh, again is uh, absolutely where we have to go.
0: So so you mentioned something, uh, two things that I found really important in your answer there. Number one is that um, this is not a large, strategic, officer-only type conversation no. that we're having. This this is from private yes. to four-star. Correct. And then the second thing is the after-action reviews. I know in my experience um, Rank disappears, and in <laughs> order for it to be truthful and honest, yeah. uh, you, you have to have those yes. forthright conversations. Has, has that been your experiences throughout your years?
1: Absolutely. It's what the, it's actually what the chief staff, of the Army, has asked us to do now in terms of uh, what he calls the or what we call the three corrosives: right, suicide, sexual assault and, uh, and harassment, and in fact, uh, ex- extremism. Yeah, we have to examine those. We have to drive those things out of our force. To do that, we have to learn, listen, find the right approach, and then attack those problem areas. That is that is what we have to do in order to maintain the trust of the American people. Trust goes all the way through the chain of command. And we have to do those things. We have to build formal and informal feedback loops. And so that that is also a part of this business, I believe.
2: Yeah. So, Jim, I was just... Uh, one point I was say so in the after-action review process, rank doesn't go away, right? I mean, we are, after all, we are a hierarchical yeah, organization. It yeah. But it's an it's a it's a, it's, a fan, it's an unbelievably powerful leadership example, or or uh, um, where the senior leader uh, makes himself herself open. For the kind of dialogue that furthers the uh, the unit's ability to accomplish the mission, that can only happen when the when the the senior leader, whether that's a platoon leader or a four-star general, uh, is present, and has set the conditions to say, it's okay for you to voice concern about hey, you know, whether it's a tactical operation hey, you know, this didn't really go well. Right. I, I, by the way, you know, <laughs> having been subjected to some of that as yes. a battalion commander, I think I, and Mr. Pascal here at will can verify this, I think I still hold the record as a battalion commander for the shortest Movement to contact <laughs> in the history of the United States Army. I think we went. I think we went seven minutes from the time we crossed the line of departure until we were all dead. Uh, you know, so that was a pretty. That was a great yeah. after-action review. But but the senior leader has to make it, make it clear by actions and by words to say it's okay to have this open, uh, open and free dialogue. Yeah, and, uh, and, and that's how we learn.
1: I agree. so I used to start mine. Uh, speaking of short movements to contact, and when I was a squadron commander. With what I failed to do was, and because, and then you go from there and learn those lessons. And and frankly, you learn them. You know, human form learns a couple of ways: significant emotional experience and repetition. And uh, what you hope is you're not repeating those same lessons every time.
0: So where are we today in the Army in terms of incorporating ethics in our leadership development programs, particularly in in, with NCOs or even at West Point? um, You know, the ROTC programs. How how are we incorporating ethical training uh, into, you know, general army everyday life?
1: Well, in tradoc we actually have set ethical training processes. We have it in uh, basic combat training. If it's two, about two and a half hours. We talk about the characteristics of the army ethic. We talk about army values. We talk about the eth- ethical processing model. Then in bolic which is the, the second lieutenant courses, there's about three and a half hours spread across the, the spectrum of training. Uh, what's interesting is in the captain career course, we've now taken this and taken ethical decision-making. And it made it part of the everyday fabric of the or It's not just a set block. It's an ethical uh, decision-making process throughout the captain's career course, which is a one-on-16 engagement where you're learning from your peers. It's, it uses the adult learning model. It's a phenomenal tool to, to learn from each other.
2: Yeah, I, I think that's right, and so the, um, you know, the structure inside the army and inside training and doctrine command, the Center for the Army Profession and Leadership, is obviously a, a key component of that. And we've already talked about the essential role of doctrine. What I, what I, what I think, is, for me as a soldier, what didn't work so well, frankly, was, okay, for the next hour, we're going to talk about the army ethic. Right. You know, yeah, and we're going right. to put, you know, we're going to put slides no. up and, and, and do all that kind of stuff. What worked more, what worked better for me was when the the, the ethical components of leader development were woven into other training Correct. events. So whether it's a simulation where you in, insert a, an ethical dilemma that a leader has to cope with, you know, maybe it's a, uh, maybe it's a a, a a famine or a, A disaster that has uh, that has occurred in the area of operations you know you're trying to fight a fight and then you've got this this other disaster maybe it's uh, again in simulation or in a training exercise its leaders coming upon evidence of a war crime or or other you know and how do they deal with that that to me was always more more useful to me in the practical exercise in the situational training exercise in and in simulation more so than sitting in a classroom and say, okay, ladies and gentlemen, for the next hour, we're going <laughs> yeah, to talk about right. the, you know, the the law of land warfare or something like
1: that. Uh, that was the trade off of old. I will tell yeah. you now, yeah. uh, you can go to the Army Training Network at any time mm-hmm. and have situational training exercises on ethical behavior, everything you can imagine, from uh, from leadership dilemmas to to what we're going to do in terms of uh, uh, DE and I. We are in in fact. Uh, making these products, using this this delivery method of Army Training Network to get after the, so you can have these discussions in your organizations, because the vast majority of the people spend 80% of their time in operational units, which is where we have to use those as leadership laboratories every day. For sure.
0: Uh, Just a reminder to the audience, if you do have questions, please, you know, write them on Facebook or also our chat room. And we actually have one right now from uh, Justin uh, on Facebook. Um, He asks the question, General Funk references his gut in ethical decision making. How do we cultivate guts in our members like you have?
1: great question. And it comes through experiential learning, as I said. It comes from tough training. Where you have to make ethical uh, dilemmas or, or decisions it comes from uh, having peer-to-peer discussions on things. so it's an experience piece. you're trusting your gut you have to have some experience before you can just let your gut take over.
2: Yeah so in retirement gut has a different meaning <laughs> you know, you know than, uh, than it did in uniform but I, I, I think uh, the other aspect another aspect that plays into that experience that general Funk and, and other senior leaders have is mentoring um, and, and you know, the opportunity to engage with, with others. Now, when you get to General Funk's level, you know, we, we have a tendency to think about mentoring as senior to subordinate. You know, there are not very many people in the <laughs> Army senior to, to General Funk, um, but you get mentoring in a lot of different ways. You know, and uh, some of the most effective mentors that I encountered in my time as a general were, were, were the sergeant's major and those senior civilians who would kind of pull you aside and say, "Hey, General, have you thought about this?" You know, was kind of their very polite way to say, "Hey, you're about to screw this up." Exactly. You know, but you might want to think about things a, a different way. So mentoring has an important aspect in building, uh, just in that that gut ex- that experience level.
1: And I, and I get mentored every day. Uh, I and sometimes it comes in form of face to face like this. Sometimes it comes from. Uh, Somebody will point something out to me on the internet that I per- perhaps should or shouldn't do. Or, in fact, uh, you know, you get, you get one of your peers or subordinates to come up and say, hey, I've been thinking about this, what do you think? I, the mentoring piece in our Army is so important uh, and really, really is a component of leadership that is uh, if you're going to put anything in your kit bag, being a good mentor for folks is incredibly important
2: and having a good mentor.
1: And, and finding the, the right uh, uh, mentors is really critical. You know,
0: let's talk a little bit about processes, though. Sometimes ethical decisions um, don't get made, uh, especially by, by leaders. And I guess the question that's out there is, do we have processes in place for soldiers and civilians, you know, IG comes to yeah. mind uh, a little bit, but to raise these ethical concerns without fear of retribution?
2: Yeah, I think this is an area where we can improve. John uh, the, the Funk and I were talking before this about, uh, about the Fort Hood report. And I think that's one of the things that came through in the Fort Hood report was that, was that soldiers, non-commissioned officers, officers at, at, at all level, in some, in some cases uh, didn't feel that they uh, had the opportunity, were encouraged or were listened to, uh, by others in the in the chain of command and so that's something that requires constant work and constant nurturing you know it's a really easy thing and it becomes easier the more senior you get to say you know I have an open-door policy I want to hear a wide variety of opinions I want to hear what's on, on your mind that's, that's really easy to say it's much more difficult to actually do that you know again because we are a hierarchical organization you know, it takes a pretty significant uh, degree of moral courage uh, for somebody to, you know, for a, for a young soldier, a uh, young non-commissioned officer, to kind of raise their hand and say, hey, Sergeant Major, hey, Colonel, hey, General, um, I, I don't think this is going well and, and we should talk about it. that." That's easy for old generals to say yeah. you should do that and I want you to do that. It's much more difficult for that young soldier, that young civilian, to actually do that. So fostering a climate where that kind of candid conversation uh, is encouraged falls to the responsibility of the senior leader to set those conditions but again much much more easily said than done and i think that's an area where the army can continually seek to improve yeah i think the, i think that's exactly right and it's
1: it's feedback mechanisms both uh... formal and informal and we have listening posts in our units. We understand where we're looking and what we're trying to do. But you've got to nurture those all the time. And you've got to, you've got to be willing to listen to what it is that's occurring, or at least get through the filters. And, and the moral courage to, to come up and stand up and say these things uh, is, is right. And so I think the more we can, we can build feedback loops that are trusted, the better off we're going to be.
0: Now we've talked a lot about trust uh, throughout the course of this conversation. And I think it's important, again, that we, we look at trust as something that takes a really long time to build and it can be eroded, evaporated in yeah. an instant. How do we foster that culture uh, of trust and continue to, to improve and grow it?
1: You've got to build on trust every day. You gotta, you, I told you, you know, you, we get, we're trusted by the American people to wear the cloth of our nation. Well, we have to do that in an ethical manner. We have to understand what it means that the American people expect of us. They expect more of us, and we should, uh, we should own up to that. And, and where we fall down, we need to conduct an after action review, and then make changes, and then drive on. The people need us to be trusted, a trusted institution in this nation, and that's what we ha- have to strive for every day.
2: I, 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 if, I may, if I may, Jim. So I, I hope some of you had an opportunity yesterday. This is a shameless plug for AUSA. <laughs> but we had the opportunity to have a conversation with Sergeant Major of the Army, Grinston. And this is one of the areas that he, that he spoke to yesterday. He says, he says, think about this. He says, if you're, if you're in combat with your squad, with your platoon, and, 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 and with any unit, and one of the soldiers is in combat and says, hey, I need some help here you know, whether they're being suppressed or whether there's a, uh, an explosion or whatever it is. In combat, if, if, a, if a soldier, if anybody in uniform says, hey, I need some help, man, we, we do that, right? We rush to the sound of the guns. We immediately respond to that, to that requirement for, for help. And the SMA asks, well, why doesn't that same characteristic carry over into non-combat situations? So that if you're in garrison... And a, and a soldier either voices concern or you see a soldier that, has, that, that needs some help, why don't we instantaneously, just like we do in combat, why, don't we ins- why doesn't the leader instantaneously respond to that, uh, that need for, for help in a non-combat situation? So I think that's, uh, I thought that was very interesting. And if you, if you didn't see SMA Grinston, again, a shameless plug for it, just go to AUSA.org. And, and his uh, presentation conversation with SMA retired Dan Daly is, is archived there. But I think that's, again, that's it, this, this trust between leader and lead at every level is one that we've got to continue, continually focus on and it's built
0: by action. You recently wrote in an article um, for War on the Rocks, trust builds further when a drill sergeant takes that little bit of extra time to show a new soldier how to properly accomplish a task to standard. Trust builds when first-line leaders, often corporals or sergeants, actually listen when a new soldier joins their unit and demonstrate by their actions that they genuinely care. Talk about throughout your career how, how you were able to see that in action um, and how you implemented it yourself.
2: Well in, in, the, in the very best practices it is those uh, it, it is those great non-commissioned officers, other first-line leaders who, who do just that, who do listen, uh, who do take the, the, the extra time uh, to, uh, to help a soldier who may be struggling with an issue. Maybe it's an issue in training. Maybe it's an issue, frankly, in personal finance. Maybe it's a, an issue in a, in a personal relationship. Maybe it's a family thing. Maybe it's any kind of issue. But the leader uh, demonstrating genuine caring. Uh, for that, uh, for that soldier, for that young civilian, and saying, "Okay, I, I may not be the one that can that can help you through this, but we're going to find the right person to, to help you through whatever that challenge is," demonstrating through their actions uh, that they are genuinely concerned. As a young officer, I served in the the, uh, the 22nd Infantry Regiment, uh, whose motto is "Deeds, not words." It's a pretty good m- mantra, I think, for leaders at at every level. People listen to what you say, they'll, they'll buy by that, but they're affected more by what you do. So, uh, you know, I, I, I think we've got to think about how do we
1: bring people into our organizations? How do, how do, how do you welcome them? I, I think we've got to be, you know, I use this term a lot and sometimes are criticized for it, but I think we've got to be positively intrusive into people's lives. We've got to understand their, their, who their spouses are. Who their kids are. We got to understand where they're living, what they're doing, how how it is that they're are they having some of these issues. Because we have programs for everything in the doggone army. And frankly, if we know you're having this issue, if uh, an engaged leader can find a solution to it, but we have to we have to have that basics of trust to say, okay, my leader's going to help me through this issue. So I think the more we can build on that, the more we show folks that we care, that we can be kind to one another, so that we can have a dialogue. That doesn't mean we have to be soft-hearted or any of that business. What it means is we got we got to care for one another's issues and then help take them on and help find a solution. You know, I, I look at um, the, the essential characteristics of the Army profession. Military expertise, honorable service, trust, esprit de corps, and then the stewardship of the profession—all of those are built on trust. So our our legal and ethical, moral standards built on trust are the bedrock of what it is we're trying to get done, and it goes everything from uh, you know General Creighton Abrams, the who uh, the chief of staff of the army, said, you know, the army isn't the army is people. That is so true, and the, the, uh, that's why the, the Chief's program and the SMA's program on people first. That's what it that means, it's we got to care enough about each other as individuals to make our units, organizations, and structures stronger and better. That's what we got to be able to do.
0: And inherently what you're talking about is bunk fundamental number 25.
1: Yeah, that's, the Army is a people business, it is. It is. It really doesn't matter what MOS you are, what branch you are, what, what kind of cool badges you wear. It's about taking care of one another and understanding that, that we're all in this together.
0: In general, you know, the, the, those fundamentals, they came from a personal story. Uh, where did that one originate?
1: Uh, the, the Army is a people business. I, I actually got from the statement General uh, Abrams uh, said, and, and, and it's so true. It absolutely is. And that goes to learning. And mentoring and peer to peer mentorship and things. I've seen that. The, the, the best outfits are, you know, the best outfits care for one another. You know, how are you branding your relationship? If you think of uh, basic combat training, we've now taken out the shark attack and we're turned into the first hundred yards. And the first thing that sergeant says to those young men and women that get off that bus at the infantry school is, follow me. Think about the responsibility of that. How critical is that? And that should take that young man and woman and say, man, I'm in an organization that cares about me, that wants to lead me through some of this adversity to become something better on the other side. Think about that. Follow me. So
0: we have another question uh, from Facebook. It comes from James. Building trust requires leaders to allow their soldiers to fail, learn, and develop without fear of retribution. Some leaders are too afraid to fail and don't foster the aforementioned within their organization. What is your advice for those leaders
2: struggling with this? Yeah, James, that's a, that's a very real concern. Again, we, we all, all leaders say... You know, I, I, I don't want to cultivate a, an environment of zero defects. But but in many cases, we actually do, you know, in in large ways and, and small. And I think there are, you know, there's a clear line. There's a, you know, violations of, you know, committing a crime, ethical uh, uh, shortcomings, those kinds of things, th- those are kind of in the unforgivable uh, category. So that... I think those are in a different category, but God, if I, if I was if you know if if I got fired every time I made a mistake, I wouldn't have made it beyond PFC. You know, um, I mean, it, 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 so it is it is leaders that take the opportunity that when someone makes a mistake, to help them learn and grow from that, sometimes in painful ways. Right, and it, it, that just it just is the case, but but it is difficult. But I also worry that that in our in our environment, um, in, in the in the army culture, that we've 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 sometimes made uh, uh, failure. We, we say it's not zero defect, but it is. So we expect every company commander to re, to report, you know, 100 percent completion of, every task. of of every task that's that's assigned to them. Well, in reality. You know, very rarely does 100% of a company do anything. You know, somebody's on emergency leave, somebody's in school, somebody's you know, off doing, doing something else. Um, but yet, if you're the company commander, if you're the only company commander in your brigade that reports, hey, I, didn't, I got the 92%, I didn't get to 100%, you know, then how is that treated? Right. Does the brigade commander say, well, Captain Funk, you're the, you're the only one in the brigade who failed this? you know but yet maybe you're the only one in the brigade who's being honest about this um, and, and so i th- so i think you know that kind of that kind of mentality in the uh, in the leader has got to be said okay if you if you fail what are we going what are we going to do about that how do we help you learn from this experience again it's one of those leader traits that that everybody subscribes to very easy to say very difficult to to uh, to do and i you know more times than i care to remember have either been on the, the receiving end of uh, hey you screwed this up uh, or been on the delivery end of hey you screwed this up and sometimes you got you got to swallow hard bite your tongue and say okay you know captain funk you know screwed this up but but not that i haven't heard but, that but before. but but <laughs> <laughs> but there's but this is this is somebody who has a valuable contribution to That's continue right. to make and how do i help him how do i help that individual learn and I help, how do I help the organization learn so that they are better the next time around?
1: Yeah, what, uh, one of the great quotes uh, of the 90, uh, 20th century was uh, uh, the one from uh, Teddy Roosevelt. It's not the critic who counts. Yeah. It is the doer of deeds who could have done or should have done them better. But the credit goes to the man. And in this case, men and women in the arena. You're not going to make the right decisions every time. Yeah, that's not possible. But if you're doing it in an ethical manner, and you're doing what what benefits your organization, there are ways to make sure that we we can overcome those things.
0: One of the purposes for the Leader Professional Development webinar uh, was to talk about diversity. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think each and every one of us uh, has our own personal code, uh, own personal code of ethics. How do we take the 550,000 person force um, and create organizational ethics out of that because right? everybody has a different idea.
1: Well, you have doctrine to start with, and that gives you the the, uh, the baseline for everybody to build up. The Army values, for example, and then from there you do a seri- you do training. How does, how do we learn? Significant emotional experience and repetition, right? So then w- from that you you then do a series of training exercises. You you actually work your way through these. You. You, you try to discuss some of these dilemmas before they happen. So you do them in simulation or you do them as part of a situational training exercise which allows you then to discuss them in an open way so you can learn together before you actually have to
2: get committed to that. That would be my suggestion. I, I think this is an area where the Army actually has, has made some significant progress. I, I enlisted in 1973. <laughs> that's before most of you were born, <laughs> I get it. Um, but, but through basic training at Fort Jackson, Infantry AIT at Fort Polk, and on, the, the, the emphasis was on creating the, the big green machine. You know that, that every, you know every soldier is. This is a. This was a. You know a much larger army, but but getting every individual to conform to the ideal uh, model of a soldier. We've learned from that over the past generations. And I think today the Army looks at that and says, I I don't, you know, I I don't want everybody to be the same. SMA Grinston talks about this. You know, don't tell me that you just see green. If you just see green, you're not seeing the person. And it's an institutional recognition that the strength that comes from the backgrounds, experiences, cultures, beliefs, practices of a very diverse Army actually bring tremendous strength to that Army. Yeah, in a simple way, in my view, the the army should broadly represent the nation that it serves. Frankly, the enlisted force is pretty good in yeah. that regard, and the officer force isn't. And there's work work to be done there to to bring those elements of diversity, not just the the outward manifestations of of diversity of you know race and race and sex and uh, other you know ethnicity things that are that are measurable. But diversity of backgrounds, diversity of education, diversity of, of experiences, all of those combined will make the Army stronger. And they make, that our
1: diversity is our strength, the bottom line. And so the better we can be, the more diverse we are, the better off we're going to be, and, and to lead the nation. We have to lead the nation now, okay? So let's do this. Uh, and so we have to continue to examine this. Going all the way back, though, my, my father taught me this in a study.
2: Talk to soldiers where they are. Yeah. All right. And and lots of soldiers, particularly younger soldiers of of all ranks, younger civilians across the army profession. Um, social media is their means of, of connectivity. And so, if the army is not present there, if the army is not taking advantage of the tools, the uh, the opportunities that social media adv- uh, affords the army, they are missing a, an opportunity. Now. Again, if, if some of you heard uh, SMA Grinston yesterday, uh, you know, s- soldiers that, that go to social media and, and, uh, and raise issues there, frankly, I think most o- older military leaders was like, that's okay, but I'd also like you to bring your issue to your squad leader, bring your issue to your platoon sergeant, bring your issue to your company commander and first sergeant. But, but the reality is social media is here, it's to stay, it's active. Uh, and there are opportunities for the Army to leverage that. I know the Army is leveraging social media for the, uh, for the deployment of, of uh, training and, and other um, very valuable, valuable leader development opportunities. Uh,
1: absolutely. On, on the flip side of that, let's not re- let social media replace the fact uh, our leadership and our personal responsibility. You, and we talked about courage and candor, right? So, and, and having the courage as a private to talk to the general. You know, social media can give you some informal feedback loops, but th- there is nothing that says I trust you better than taking your issue to a, to a squad leader or a leader in your organization and getting the help you need. That, the trust in the chain of command is, is in paramount to our, to our operational and uh, strategic narratives.
0: Yeah, social media has definitely uh, offered a little bit of flattening of the information environment, right. yeah. uh, but it, it certainly doesn't replace good leadership um, and, right. and strength. Also, and I, I
1: like to avoid the three personas. You know, everybody's got, there's a the, the work, home, and then, and then what you see on social media. And sometimes, you know, courage takes different forms.
0: Yeah, key, keyboard courage uh, yeah. sometimes gets a little too exciting <laughs> at times. Um, you know, it... How about just this concept of ethos, though? Uh, how does diversity make organizations better in, in terms of developing a code of ethics?
1: General Hamm explained that perfectly a little bit ago. It's, it's all of the different uh, experiences that education, leadership, uh, it's, uh, it's everything. The diversity of thought, of, of uh, how you were raised, all those things bring us all together, even from what region of the country or nation or world you're from. Everybody brings a diverse uh, background. It's fascinating. I always ask two questions. When I, when I give a coin or talk to, talk to a young trooper, why'd you join our army, and why do you continue to serve? And what I find from those is, is this diversity of thought. I join for some join to get away from things, some join to, to become part of something bigger than themselves, some join for the college money. All, there's a ton of reasons why they join, why they stay, is almost invariably about the people. Almost invariably, it's they like leading soldiers so they like being part of something bigger than this. Is although the people that they have become uh, now grown up with are absolutely their friends, family, and and it's a it's an amazing way to see this. So, I think that the our ethos, the warrior ethos, that that ability to say send me, is so. To
2: our But Jim, I think there are some some very strategic value in diversity, but there are also some very practical aspects of of diversity. As a uh, as a a battalion commander in in Germany in the in the the early 90s, um, some will recall there was a humanitarian disaster in in Haiti, and and call went out across the army. They're looking for Haitian speakers. Well, so happened that my gunner was a Haitian speaker. You know, there's 11 Bravo, staff sergeant, um, you know, and he says, well, I'll go. But nowhere in his record did it, did it, did it show that. Uh, Think about it in the reserve components. And General Funk and I, you know, share experiences in operational theaters with members of the reserve components who bring in, that bring in an extraordinary level of, of, uh, of experiences and expertise outside of their military occupational specialty that has that have proven incredibly valuable. So that again, that, back, that diversity of backgrounds and experiences is something that I know through the Talent Management Task Force, through the various uh, People First initiatives that, uh, that the Army is working on, how do we better take advantage of that, uh, that diversity that does in fact make our Army increasingly capable it's
1: it's it's perfect a segue into the question that you have up there now about organizational transparency and i talked a little bit about how do you bring somebody into your organization do you ask them what their strengths are where they where you, you know what do we usually do you fill out this form okay yeah uh, how many how many kids spouses where do you live on post and do we ever ask what are your What are your experiences outside the nation? Do what What have you done? What languages do you speak? What What are your hobbies? What do you want to do? How do you want to grow and learn? So you know, as a kind of a plug for IPSA, which is our new personnel and finance system, that's going to give us 27 different characters, so of which to search. Those kinds of tools are what we're learning, because from the wars we do because it goes through the great reserve components we have and the diversity and the depth of things that they can do. I needed uh, just a short war story. When I was a brigade commander, and we were in, in Iraq, and, and during the surge, we were doing we were being cops and bobs, right? So we were expanding our reach in a, almost an in, in, ink spot manner. Well, of course, we didn't have enough vertical and horizontal engineers, so we did a, a query. And of course, we could do two things. We knew you were a sergeant. And you might have been an engineer. We have no idea whether you you, you did anything in, in your civilian life. Well, it turns out I had a tremendous amount of carpenters, and electricians, and things in, the, in my organization. But I had to learn that in combat. So we have to build on these diverse uh, experiences to show the richness of the the depth of the of the actual expertise we have in our force.
0: Yeah, and I want to thank Christopher from, uh, from Facebook for asking uh, that question about organizational transparency, and uh, simple and enduring things
2: leaders can actually do to build that. Do you have experience with that? I do. So, so, you know, Army leaders, one of the things Army leaders bring is the connection with those that they serve with. Um, so being present, right? You know, it's the old game show. You must be present to win, right? And if you're an <laughs> army leader, whether you're a whether you're a, a, a fire team leader or the commander of United States Army Training and Doctrine Command, if you don't find time, if you don't purposely make time uh, to to be with those that that, that you lead, um, then then the transparency isn't there. It's always the question. Funk's thinking, you know, yeah, right. you know, and not that General Funk has the opportunity to meet with every soldier in training and doctrine command, but can. Personal visits, social media, as we as we just yeah. discussed, uh, sessions such as this, leaders have to be engaged, and the more engaged they are, the more transparent they are, and leaders have to be, as hard as it is to sometimes, you know, be a little bit thick skinned and not be overly sensitive when somebody voices they're concerned that, that they don't particularly like something <laughs> right. that, that you just did and uh, and and the opportunity to explain you know like, we did this because yeah. uh, and learn from that well, as
1: well and Jim you mentioned funk fundamentals one of them number 39 I think it is uh, is uh, leadership's a contact sport right. you've got to be there every day you've got you got to show up and, you, and you're not going to get it right every day but you got to you got to you got to get in the game you got to uh-huh. be co- present in the moment
0: um, we have a couple minutes left. Uh, Army.mil, uh, the Center of Military History, um, has started to showcase their 30th anniversary of Desert Shield, uh, Desert Storm. Um, both of you served in, in that theater. So, what are your memories uh, of that that conflict?
2: So I so I was I I was late uh, to Desert to, to Desert Storm. Uh, uh, served as an advisor uh, with the Saudi Arabia National Guard after the, the combat phase, so, uh, so the fighting had, had uh, largely subsided. But what I, what I learned from that um, uh, was the, the value of, uh, of allies and partners. If we think back to that time, it was an extraordinary coalition effort uh, that was put together, and, and the, the, the operations of the, of the joint force. Uh, so those stayed with those uh, lessons have, have stayed with me, and one of the things that I learned in that experience is, and, and subsequent experiences, uh, particularly in in, uh, in multinational engagements, the United States Army, more more precisely, American soldiers, are held up in almost every country country as the aspirational ideal of professionalism and ethical behavior. Now, that doesn't mean you, your head should swell too, too much, but it is an understanding that, that in just about every other country in the world, they look to you. Uh, they look to you for the model of what an, the, the, the behavior of a soldier should be. Competence, to be sure. Courage, absolutely. But a strong moral component uh, to your behavior as well. Yeah, character and
1: commitment are the other Cs the to that. Uh, so Desert Storm is a deeply personal thing to me. My father-in-law was the Army commander, commanded Third Army. My John Yosak is his name. My, I can picture getting out of the car. My dad was actually my division commander. I can actually picture myself still to this day getting out of the, the, uh, the car. And leaving my nine-month pregnant wife, with our 16-month-old son, and our baby daughter on the way, in a snowy uh, in Friedberg, Germany, and getting on a uh, getting on a bus to go get her on an airplane, to go to a conflict, we were told that we were not we, we were going to have a big casualties and that it was going to be a tremendous uh, undertaking. It was uh, America's. As it turns out, 100 hours, America's perhaps best first battle ever. But that was built in the years by the the veterans of Vietnam who would not or could not allow us to fail. They were morally and ethically committed to the tough training and, and duty and responsibility that it was going to take to change the Army. They were committed to that. And so at the end of the day, that is a deeply personal um, time for me in the, in the Army. And, and kind of set out my, for the rest of my career to realize that giving back to, wearing, to having the honor of wearing the cloth of our nation is, in fact, that and honor, and should be, um, should be always built on. Well,
0: I definitely encourage folks uh, who are in the audience to go to the U.S. Center of Military History. Again, that's history.army.mil to find out uh, all these great stories. That are out there. I have I have a friend who wrote a book on it, uh, Colonel Scott Langham Felter, um, on yep. the role of artillery. So, oh, yeah, just uh, it, Desert, it, Red Des- Desert Red. Lake. That's right. <laughs> and we've
1: all we've all heard of this <laughs> there book.
0: Yeah. So, uh, great 30 year anniversary. Folks need to need to get smart on it yeah. if they aren't
2: already. And when conditions permit, get to the National Museum of the United States Army. In Absolutely. Fort Bedford, and you'll see you'll see Desert Shield, Storm highlighted there as well. Exactly right. And. Uh, Don't forget to reach out and thank a vet. So
0: I have the greatest job in the world, I think. I get this front row seat uh, every month for these LPD webinars. And uh, again, the the time has just flown by. I (laughs) I really appreciate uh, General Ham, General Funk, uh, this opportunity uh, to to learn from you both today. Um, And I would just uh, turn it over to you, General Ham, for some maybe closing thoughts.
2: Well, thanks, Jim. And General Funk, thanks for the invitation to, to, to join uh, TRADOC today. You know, I have, I have some background in, in TRADOC <laughs> as, a, as a major at the infantry school and as a, as a brigade commander uh, with a training support brigade at, at uh, Fort Benning. Um, I guess what I would say to this group, I would, I would close with a, with a quote um, uh, from uh, General of the Army George Marshall. And it was in his farewell address to the Army. And General Marshall, your legendary leader for our nation and for our army, General Marshall said, in the end, I have done my best, and I hope I have sown some seeds which may bring forth good fruit. That's what we expect of you. That's what we expect of every army leader, uh, to do your very best every day. Candidly, you can't do any more, and the nation you serve expects no less. You know, there's an old athletic challenge that says, how hard would you play today if you knew you couldn't play tomorrow? That's a pretty good mentality for an Army leader to have. So, uh,
1: as I said when I started, General uh, Ham and I actually um, share a common heritage and lineage, and that's uh, the Big Red One. Well, if you take uh, B-R-O, Big Red One, and you take it out Form, you could say, be brave, responsible, and on point for the nation. That's what the—that's uh, what our army needs to do. That's where we need to go. And frankly, I—you uh, know—although they didn't do as well as they wanted to here in the semifinals, I have always loved that uh, saying as they walk out of the stadium, Notre Dame Stadium, and it says, "Play like a champion today." We get the opportunity to wear the jersey of the greatest team on earth. Let's leave that jersey in a better place every day. Thanks, uh, thanks, General Ham, uh, one of my mentors and friends. Uh, it's been a great day, and I, I really appreciate you coming and sharing this time
2: with us. Thanks, General Funk. Thanks, Jim.
0: General Ham, General Funk, great conversation. Thank you again, very much. Um, you know. These webinars continue though, Uh, so while this one we'll make sure is up on Vimeo and LinkedIn for folks to see, I hope folks will tune in again for our next LPD webinar on the 17th of February, 1100 Eastern, featuring musician, author, double amputee, and soldier for life, J.P. Lane. We're definitely looking forward to hearing from, from him. And again, if you missed any portion of today's webinar or would like to watch a previous episode and other supplemental videos, Uh, including some of your questions from today, visit and follow our LinkedIn page at US Army TRADOC or find us on Vimeo where all the videos are showcased. Until next time, thanks for watching. Keep the conversation going. Build your cohesive team. Victory starts here. here.